0: Hey, Here we go. Welcome to Adventure's first teaching series of 2021, the original Big Ten. So we're in a series where we're breaking down the Ten Commandments, or what under Judaism are known as the Ten Statements of God. The name of what we call them is just something we've made up so we can all have a common reference point. Uh, It's like Jesus did not call the Sermon on the Mount, hey, I'm going to do a Sermon on the Mount. You should come hear it. No. Um, No, that's just what we call it because it identifies that specific sermon. And honestly, most of the sermons Jesus gave were on a mount. That's how you did it. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's lumpy over there. So. Anyhow, so Americans in the Ten Commandments have got this really awkward and honestly embarrassing relationship with each other. 78% of Americans approve of public displays of the Ten Commandments in court buildings, schools, wherever. 78% of the American public says we're okay with displaying the Ten Commandments. Now, let me build a little context up why that matters. 25% of Americans can name all seven ingredients of the Big Mac. We're amazing. 35% can name all six kids from the Brady Bunch. And honestly, there was a significant portion. I don't remember what it was now, but they could actually name Cousin Oliver too. Um, 40% of Americans can name only five of the Ten Commandments. 74% can name all three Stooges. Mo, you guys are amazing. You can remember three things. Just so you know, there's going to come a point where you're going to go visit your family doctor. And your family doctor is going to say, at the beginning of this appointment, I'm going to give you three words. And when we're done, I'm going to ask you to repeat them back to me. (laughs) You'll get it. (laughs) Believe me, it's going to happen. So even though 78% of Americans are okay with the display of the Ten Commandments, only 14% can name all ten. Isn't that interesting? It gets even more interesting. Less than 60% of Americans could identify that you shall not commit murder was one of the Ten Commandments. Less than 40, 45% had ever even heard You shall honor your father and mother. We're not very good with this. So I want to suggest to you today that the greatest tragedy is not that the Ten Commandments are disappearing from courthouses and schools and public displays. I want to suggest to you that the biggest tragedy today is that the Ten Commandments are disappearing from the minds and the hearts of most Americans who claim to love them. I would suggest that if you consider yourself an American champion of your civil rights and you can't name the Ten Commandments, you are a poser. You are not the real deal. You're chasing a facade. See, this American experiment That we call ordered liberty. We were the first on that. That grew here. That was born here. And this ordered liberty presupposes the existence of a supreme being who instituted a universal moral code that applies to everyone. In fact, the Declaration of the Independence declares that this universal Moral code is self-evident. Meaning it's just there. You can see it everywhere. Now, that's had someone say, so is this gonna be like a USA USA series? No, it's not, believe me. It's not a USA, USA, USA series. In fact, I don't know if you've ever caught this. We don't even have an American flag in the building. Right? We're not about nationalism. We're about Jesus. But I will also have people say to me, you know what, you, can't, you cannot erase the negative things about American history. And I agree 100% with that, but I also want to counter with something. You also cannot erase the, the positive stuff from American history either. The stuff that contributed to us having the good things that we have today. See, the U.S. Declaration enshrined a simple yet powerful truth, right? That unalienable rights... Basic human rights do not come as a gift from some ruling elite. Our unalienable rights didn't come from the founding fathers. Our unalienable rights do not come from Congress. And they do not come from the Supreme Court. They don't come from rulers or anything. What they are is they are natural rights that come from God and Romans 13 says that it is government's obligation to protect those individual, natural, unalienable rights. Now, the Founding Fathers went out of their way to acknowledge God. Even the atheists and deists went along with this and concurred with this. The Founding Fathers went out of their way to acknowledge God no less than four times in the Declaration of Independence. Listen to these lines the laws of nature and of nature's God. All men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions. With a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. Those are all references to God. Now, let's review. So the first statement of the 10, the first of the 10 Commandments, Is reaffirmed all through the documents and writings of the founding fathers again even the universalist even the deist even the non-believers let's go into Exodus chapter 20 verse 2 what's the first statement we looked at this one last week I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt the place of your slavery so that is the context for all the other commandments. That's the thing that sets the stage. This is the commandment that all the other commandments are built on. Now, the most common translation, as we get into this next one, we're going to read verses 3 through 6 here, begins like this. You must not have, now this is the first command, uh, second command under Judaism, first command, under Christianity, under our interpretation or our breakdown of it. You must not have any other God but me. Now that commandment goes on and it's a commandment that carries with it a warning or a curse and a blessing. All right? go to verse four. You must not make for yourselves an idol of any kind or an image of what? Anything in the heavens on earth or in the sea. Now, some some groups, I grew up around Amish, some groups believe that that means you can't even take photographs of things or that you can't paint pictures or that you can't carve something or that you can't sculpt something. This next verse makes it clear that's not what they're talking about. God is a creator and God made us to create. We have artists because we have a God who's an artist. Um, All right, so let's go. Here, Here shows you that that's not true. Verse five, you must not bow down to them or worship them. So you're not to create something that you're gonna bow down to and worship. Something that you're gonna give priority to over God, over what God has called you to do. For I, the Lord your God, am a, what, jo- what, what kind of God? Jealous. Yeah, circle the word jealous, because I'm gonna come right back to that. That translation, that word, our understanding that has caused us so much trouble. I'm a jealous God who will not tolerate your, what? Your affection for any of the gods. All right, so let's stop here. Let's talk about this jealousy for a second. So in our Western evangelical Christian mindset, when we think of jealousy, we always think jealousy is bad, that jealousy is a sin. Um, and uh, honestly, for us, most of the time it is a sin. We think of it as like a child who wants to take another child's toy. And gets mad about eventually works out a way to go get it Um, in the adult world it plays out like this he's up for that promotion and I deserve that promotion man I'm gonna fix that (laughs) that's jealousy that's jealousy it's something that I have no right to that I start to desire see when God is jealous God is not desiring something to which he has no claim He's not desiring something to which he has no right. His jealousy, in this case, is like the jealousy of a husband who finds out his wife has been cheating on him. Or that of a wife that finds out her husband's been running around with other women. That's a fair jealousy. That's an okay jealousy. It's a righteous indignation over a betrayal. So God is saying, listen... I'm the God who freed you. I created you, then I freed you from bondage. We have an exclusive loyalty arrangement. You broke it. You have violated it. And if you do any of these things, you've broken our agreement. So you say, well, okay, I sort of get that. Just so you understand, this is what the Bible theme was, because all through this, the New Testament especially, keeps coming back to the idea of being an adulterer toward God. Watch this, James chapter four, verse four. James is talking about people who are trying to be, trying to say they're Christian, yet they love the world a lot, and are trying also to be like the world. Here's, Here's what he says, what's he call them? He says, you, what? Adulterers! You are violating your loyalty agreement. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. This is how you know when the Bible writers are ticked off and frustrated. They repeat themselves, right? This is like your mom, all right? She has told you something. You snake just a little bit, and she's coming back at you again, all right? I say it again, (laughs) If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Then Jesus goes and Jesus reaffirms the same principle about you can't have a divided loyalty. He says, no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. In other words, you're only going to have one master, and it's going to be the master you choose to love. All right, let's go back to verse 5. All right, the warning and the blessing. This is another thing that has caused us, misunderstandings of this has caused us a lot of trouble. All right, verse 5. He says, I, what? I lay. Say, circle the word lay. We're going to come right back to it. That's not a good translation. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. All right, let's hit pause here for one second. That Hebrew word that gets translated lay there can actually be translated like a dozen different ways. And there are better ways to translate it that are more consistent with the rest of Scripture. What you have in that I lay the sins is actually a little bit of Calvinism creeping into translation. You can also translate it, and this makes more sense. That word can also be translated, I watch, I observe, I see. So basically what it should read is, I watch the sins of the parents upon their children. Does that make more sense now, hearing that? I, I watch the sins. I observe the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. So some people say, man, your God is one angry, mean dude because you're saying if I screw up, he's going to curse my kids. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm watching, I see the effect. That when parents dishonor God, when parents live outside the will of God, that affects their children, right? I mean, we see it all the time. We see it with alcoholism. We see it with substance abuse. We see it with physical abuse. We see it with sexual abuse. It's that failure of nurture. It's that thing that is inflicted. It's that thing they learn by watching. Man, we even see just plain old dysfunctional relationships go generation to generation to generation because they're learning the wrong way to do it. All right, let's keep going. All right, so I I watch. I see the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey me. He says, listen what you teach your children about God and their relationship with God, what you model is a blessing because their relationship with God will grow beyond you where your sin in their life will not. So God's alerting us up front that our choices and our consequences have got big blessings, whatever, against our families because they learn from us. So honoring God Is the pathway to blessing not just for you, but for all the people around you? Dishonoring God is the pathway to destruction, not just for you, but for all the people who are watching around you. And we're going to get into this a little bit more as we go through some of this. Let's go back to the idea of other gods here. Many people, when they think about this commandment, they think, "Oh, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. I can't make any images, can't make any idols." Like. I can't worship a tiki god, I can't worship a totem pole, you know, or a fertility goddess, or a rain god, or a harvest god, or Zeus. And we're thinking, yeah, we're too sophisticated for that. Yeah, we're not going to do something stupid like that. Yet the irony is, not only is this commandment relevant back then, it is incredibly relevant for you and me today, because it is, in many ways, the mother of all the other commandments. Why? Because we have as many false gods today, we have as many false gods today as they had back then. Ours just look better. They're not chipped out of rock or baked in an oven, out of mud. Today our gods are made out of plastic, or metal, or linen, or nameplates on doors, or car brands, excluding Jeeps. or houses or addresses, right? So why is this the basis for all the other commandments? Because if we identify the things that distract us away from God, that take our attention away from God, the very things that remove us from the presence of the God who created us, we will eliminate one of the biggest barriers in all of the world to having a blessed life. Now, Introduction, here we go. What is a false God? Any God other than the one true God. So a false God can be anything that draws our deepest focus, our deepest thoughts, our sense of being, our sense of purpose, our sense of devotion away from God and his kingdom. In fact, remember what Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. So Jesus talks about the standard, not the goal, but the standard of what a commitment to the one true God looks like. Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. You must worship the Lord your God and serve what? Only him. him. Luke 4. You must worship the Lord your God and serve Only only him. He says you don't work toward that. You don't take your whole life and work towards serving only Him. No, you make a choice now. I serve only Him, and you stay with that. Mark chapter 12. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart. He's saying, look, you're going to go all in with your being. (laughs) Because when you go all in, there is no room for anything else. You use God to block out the room for anything else. Anything that allows you, or anything that you allow to creep in, and diminish loving God with all your heart, loving God with all your soul, loving God with all your might, loving God with all your strength, and loving all those people around you has the potential to become a false priority and take precedent over God, and that's a false God. Now, let's talk about why does this one true God, because he says you can't have any other gods, I'm the one true God. Why does this belief in the one true God matter? So the point of biblical monotheism again, is that there is only one God and this one God established one universal moral code for all people. It's not subject to different regions. It's not subject to personal opinions. It comes from God and he's the one to be worshiped. That's that's why it is. So why does that concept matter to humankind? All right, let me get you some stuff here. Number one, one true God means one human race. Yeah, you'll have people say, oh, no, the Bible, that's a racist old book. That's a racist old document. Man, that's, you're just showing ignorance at that point. Listen, the ancient Persians believed the first human was so beautiful that the God who made him had to kill him, and then he sun-dried his body in the dirt and then planted it, and a rhubarb plant sprouted up out of it, and the fruit of that rhubarb plant was the first man and the first woman. And various plants brought up different races. So, man, if you're not a rhubarb, no okra. Don't hang out with okras. All right. So that was the ancient, a, the ancient Persians. The ancient Hindus taught in a cosmic man. And this cosmic man was killed by a God who then used the various parts to plant and create other life on earth. So he used various parts of the human body to make other humans. And there's only one part that we readily identify in other people. (laughs) Some of you are going to wake up like at 2.30 in the morning tonight, and you're going to think I'm the funniest thing that ever happened because you'll finally get that. You'll be going, I don't know, what's he talking about? You'll get it. Buddhism teaches that the first humans were interdimensional, genderless, spiritual beings who could float through the air and didn't require food of any kind. And then they discovered food. And has happened to many of us, they ate so much food they could no longer float. <laughs> and they were confined to the ground and they became gendered. And that's why we're here. So you've got these countless religions who have, all have these ideas of where humans came from and even where various different skin tones come from. And in the process of all that... You gotta understand that what you believe about where humans came from, and how we got what we have, that affects how you interact with those other humans. So one true God matters, why? Because there's only one true God who offers us dignity. Check this out, Genesis 1 Then God said, let us, remember Father, Son, Holy Spirit have always existed, Let us make human beings in our image to be like ourselves. Now, you may have heard the Latin phrase Imago Dei. We actually have a ministry here that's a a photography and art ministry. It's called Imago Dei. Imago, meaning in the image of, Dei, meaning God. We're going to do this a lot more next week. We'll expand on it. But every human being, because we are created in the image of God, every human being bears the Imago Dei the image of God, but some religions argue that some humans are less than others, that they are subhuman because they came from somewhere else, maybe by virtue of their genetics, or their skin color, or their culture, or whatever, and yet God made it clear from the very beginning that all people came from His image. All people exist and are made in his image. So let me show you this really random verse that really reinforces this. Genesis chapter nine, verse six. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. Why? Here, just underline to the end so that it stands out in your notes. For God made who? Humans. Humans. There's no race attached. God made all humans in his own image. And to strike at another human being is to strike at the face of God. See, if we have the same creator, if we have the same father, we're all brothers and sisters. We are created equally, which was affirmed in our founding documents nationally, regardless of skin tone, regardless of hair color, regardless of the location of our birth, there is no superiority, there is no inferiority, and knowing that, we are called to treat others as our equals, Matthew seven twelve. Do to who? Others. Doesn't say do unto people of your religion, do unto people that have your skin tone, doesn't say any of that. Do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the what? In the law. This is it. It's all right here. Luke 6, 31. Do to others as you would like them to do unto you. And if you're in Christ, you're supposed to do that. But then it's also a lot more explicit toward your fellow Christians. For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So yeah, you're children of God in the sense that you have the same you have the same creator Father. But now we've changed the relationship and taken it up a notch here. You are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, all have been called or all have been united with Christ in baptism, have put on the character of Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentiles. Listen, in the Jewish mind, those were the two races. There wasn't a variety. There were Jews and there was everybody else. He says, there's no longer Jew or everybody else, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's reaffirming this idea of one human race. Number two, having the same divine parent means no group or person is intrinsically more valuable than any other. Why? Why? Years ago, I saw Dick Clark in an interview. Remember Dick Clark? I mean, the guy who just, I never thought he'd die. I thought he'd all outlive us, you know? Kind of like Betty White. Yeah. I saw a sign the other day that says, uh, recycle, recycle? You want to leave a good planet for Betty White when you're gone? Um, So they were interviewing Dick Clark, and they said, how have you managed to stay so young for so long? And he said, I chose my parents wisely. All right, so we can't control who we're born to, can we? We can't control what socioeconomic class we're born to. We can't control where we're born. We can't. We can't control when we're born. But because every human being is created in the imago Day. None of that matters. If we're all created in the image of God, the reality is that our value comes from our creator. Our value comes from God, the one in whose image we're created. So there's no genetic, there's no ethnic traits that make any one of us any better or any worse than any others of us. So there's some really interesting words you hear beat around a lot today. And I suppose we have to have them at some point because they do call out sin, But they all deal with, uh, generally, with skin tone. Racism, defined as prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. So I used to do some work in the uh, old Eastern Bloc countries back in the day. And I remember sitting with a bunch of Albanians. And they were talking to me about that they didn't like Serbians, they didn't like Croats, and there were some that were there with us. And it was so funny as they're sitting there saying these things, and I mean, and they're meaning it, that, you know, and I said, Why don't you like them? They go, well, Yeah, they're not our race. We don't like them from our race. I'm looking, going, Do you not realize you guys are all identical? <laughs> I mean, literally, same nose, same hairdo, same bad teeth. I mean, it was just the, You have all these groups that are making this differentiation that unless you're one of those groups, you have no idea. You can't even see it. All right, racism. That's bad. Colorism. That's a real thing. It's defined as prejudice or discrimination against individuals with a dark skin tone, typically among people of the same ethnic or racial group. I don't think it has to be darker skin because I've seen people tell people they're not white enough. I've seen people tell, tell their friends, yeah, you're like a white man now. You're, like you're not like an indigenous person anymore. You're not like a Lakota Sioux anymore. Or, man, you're not black enough. If you do that, you're not black anymore. Yeah, that's colorism. That's a sin. Then there's xenophobia. Xenophobia is defined as dislike or prejudice against people from other countries. Can I tell you that if we were a xenophobic nation, my favorite restaurants wouldn't be here. <laughs> right? And honestly, 90% of the people who are keeping me alive wouldn't be working here. It's just ridiculous. See. Any of those things, whether it's racism or colorism or xenophobia, is completely against the biblical principles of love and compassion and servanthood and doing unto others what you would have them do unto you. So there's a great story about racism in um, the book of Acts. So the Jewish people, man, they had been so beat down. They had been trampled on, they'd been conquered, they'd been carried away, they'd managed to waggle their way back over a few centuries in the same spot. And so they're not the great nation that they thought they were, so they were kind of suffering from what we would call small man syndrome. So they got to yell real loud and make themselves puff up and look bigger than they are, even though it's like, it's like watching a five-year-old on the playground talk about how tough he is. Um, And so they absolutely, at the time of Christ, had a lot of strong racial tendencies. And they detested those non-Jews. They especially detested the Romans. They wouldn't even acknowledge that the Romans were occupiers in their land. They tried to act like everything was normal and that the Romans didn't matter. But man, they hated these unclean, uncircumcised, polytheistic Roman oppressors who were there taking over everything. And the Jewish believers, just because they got saved, just because they got baptized, man, they did not flip a switch and suddenly love everybody overnight. Man, they were still not liking this concept of having to interact with people from other, other, the, the other race, I guess at that point. And so there was a guy by the name of Cornelius and Cornelius was a Roman officer. In fact, Cornelius wasn't just a Roman officer. Cornelius was actually Italian. So I mean, it's a big double whammy thing. So he's an actual Italian, but he loved the Lord. We don't know his backstory, but we know that he loved the Lord. We know that he gave away so much money. He took care of the poor. He did things that the Christians should have been doing or weren't doing. <laughs> and uh, so he loved the Lord, and he just keeps telling God to reveal himself to him. So God sends an angel to Cornelius and says, listen, got this guy named Peter. He's staying you go down down to this little town over here and you go in there and there's a guy, I can't remember, I think it might be Simon the Tanner. I can't remember what his first name is. There's a guy there who does tanning. That was a big deal, making leather. So you'll be able to find the house because it smells bad, like dog food plant that you can get every once in a while, all right? So okay, yeah, just, just smell your way to that house and this guy Peter is in that house and go, go have your people go get him and bring him back here to talk to you. So as they're on their way to the house, Peter's getting ready to have supper and he's kind of, he's up on the roof of this house because it's the only place that's cool. And so he's up there and he's kind of enjoying the coolness and he's waiting on supper to be ready and he's up there. God gives him a vision. And so this vision is a giant sheet comes down. As the sheet comes down, it lays on the roof and it opens up, spreads out. And there's, you know, there's turtles, there's snakes, there's alligators. There's all these things that the Jews have, they don't eat because they're unclean. All these things, and so he's looking there, going, "Oh, I can't eat that. Oh, I can see the hoofs on that. Can't eat that, you know." So he's looking at that, watching all this stuff, and this voice from God says to Peter, "Peter, rise, kill, and eat." And Peter's like, "I'm a good Jew. I'm not eating that stuff. I grew up knowing that's bad. I can't eat that stuff. Not gonna do it. Not gonna do it." And so God takes the sheep back up. So as Peter's still sitting there, God has the sheet lowered back down in the vision. There's all the animals, and Peter's looking at it, and the voice again says, rise, kill, eat. Peter's like, so the sheet goes back (laughs) up a third time. Now, if I was God, I'd have just slammed it. (laughs) But the third time the sheet comes down, Peter's realizing, okay, three times, I'm missing something here. It's like God's trying to slow walk me to an epiphany. And so finally, he gets it. And just that sheet goes back up in the sky, and Peter's realizing that this, the code is different now. Things have changed. There comes a knock on the door. And it's these guys from Cornelius. And so they say, we're looking for Peter. we got to bring him back to our boss's house. And so he heads back, and he goes to Cornelius' house. Now watch this, because Peter's being very transparent here. Acts chapter 10, verse 25 through 28. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshiped him. But, kudos to Peter on self-realization. But Peter pulled him up and said, stand up, I'm a, what? Human being, and what kind of human being am I? Just like you! This is a big moment. We've had a breakthrough. So, they, they, they talked together and went inside. Here's mind blower number two where many others were assembled, and they were not Jews, I'll guarantee you. Watch. Peter said to them, you know how when you're just learning something and then you just say it really wrong? You're trying to phrase something that's really delicate and it comes out wrong? Here we go. Peter told them, you know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. All right, so there's his, this is his final breakthrough. Takes three of them here. Now watch. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. That was God's way of ultimately and finally in the early church destroying the xenophobia, destroying the racism, destroying the racism, saying this is not how this works. Number three, last thing. One God means one moral standard for and toward all people. Certain religious groups around the world have taught that, I mean, they literally teach every day that it's okay to kill certain people who are not from their religion or who are very different from them or of a less pure ethnicity. And because of that, those other people are subhuman. They're not worthy of humane treatment. But listen, if we have the one God and we Acknowledge the one true God, we understand that if God declares murder wrong, if God says one human takes the life of another human, that's wrong, then we realize that murder is wrong. No matter who's getting murdered, no matter who's committing the murder. It's wrong for everyone. We can't just make a... We can't fabricate a moral code that works today because I'm ticked off. Like, I might really believe that murder is completely wrong and then I drive down Kimberly or Elmore on Friday night at 6.30 and suddenly murder starts looking good, right? Or at least a large snowplow. You see, if we have any other focus be it a person, a place, or a thing that's worshipped, bad things follow. Bad things happen. I mean, not only things that can obviously lead to evil, such as a worship of power, a worship of race, a worship of money, a worship of flag, a worship of political candidates or party, it goes even further. Things that are often and, and can very well all the time be seen as beautiful things. Art, education, love. If we fall into venerating those things over God, it leads to terrible results. Art, for example. I love classical music. If you sneak up by my, by my house and get up by my window, when I'm in there working and I am in deep work mode, you're going to hear the Vienna Boys Choir singing Handel's Messiah or you're going to hear Yo-Yo Ma playing box cello suites. (laughs) Because I get in, I crank that stuff up way too loud, and I listen to it. It's my white noise, kind of, you know, and it allows me to get in and work. I'm more productive when I'm listening to those. But I also know that the most cruel human beings and regimes in all of history have hidden behind classical music while committing their sins. The Germans played classical music at the crematories, the places where they're in burning these people up. Oh, I think it was the movie uh, Clockwork Orange, where they had classical music playing in the background as people raped and murdered people. Or education, take education, for example. We know how important an education can be, from preparing people for a trade, to preparing people, um, you know, to be able to find work or to understand the world. But an education, excuse me, but education in and of itself divorced from the higher ends that God created for it, and that goodness should have with it, education often becomes a great evil in itself. We watch kids take off and go to university, and for four years, they are hammered at university with things that deny God. And we wonder why our kids come back struggling. Many of the best educated people in Germany supported Hitler in the 1930s. Many of the best educated celebrities in the U.S. supported Hitler in the 1930s. And almost all the Western world, supporters of the genocidal regimes of Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot and so forth were doctoral degree people. You know, there's nothing about a master's degree or a Ph.D. that guarantees a person will be wiser, kinder, or more ethical than someone with only a sixth grade education. In fact, what you find out a lot of times is the higher the degree, the more arrogance that comes with it. And arrogance resists teaching. So let me wrap this up. So this is why God began with, I created you for freedom if you want to have freedom, if you want to retain freedom, you need to start with these 10 statements. You need to settle for yourself that regardless of what the people around you believe, do, or say, you need to settle for yourself that you will have only the one true God, and that you will love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and that you will demonstrate your love for him by loving all the people who are around you created in his image, regardless of what they do. And you should never let anything else, even a university degree, even an advanced degree, stand between you and God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to stop and look at this command today. Lord, we thank you that you gave us more than three millennia ago the keys to having a good society, for a way to honor you. And yet, Lord, we have screwed that up so badly. Even your people don't know these ten commands. Father, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to remember that you have promised that when we're faithful to you, you will bless us, and you'll pass the blessing on to our kids for generations to come. Father, I thank you that when we trust you, you come before us, you go before us, you surround us, you lead us, and you carry us into the future because you are for us. You're not against us. These rules are not things to warn us that we're going to be in trouble. There are things to show us what happens that's positive when we don't do the things that bring consequences. Father, we thank you for this time. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.